Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. If you've listened to this podcast for more than 10 seconds, you know that my entire goal is to get you to schedule more visits. Most major gift fundraisers fail in this industry because they do not do the difficult, scary work of scheduling visits with the right people consistently. The majority of my success in major gifts came from constantly seeking to become as effective as possible at scheduling visits. I read tons of sales books, watched YouTube videos from sales experts, and studied Jerry Pandas' materials on the matter. On top of that, I practiced. The things I learned from experts gave me the confidence to actually make the calls. Today, I have a great resource that I highly recommend you download. Greg Warner from MarketSmart, this episode's sponsor, has put together a guide to help you schedule more visits. It's titled, Top 10 Tips for Landing More Meetings. Not only does Greg run a company that enables major gift fundraisers to be more effective, but he is a successful entrepreneur that has scheduled countless meetings and been on the receiving end of many people trying to schedule meetings with him. He knows a thing or two about this subject and provides 10 great tips, starting with a quote from someone you know I talk about on this podcast all the time, Jerry Panis. Greg is the real deal, and this guide will help you schedule more visits. Go download it now at imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. That's imarketsmart.com forward slash more meetings. The bonus tip, number 11, is my personal favorite. Let me know what you think. Holy bad audio quality, Batman. Welcome back to One Visit Away. In this week's episode, uh, when to record... Um, it was kind of a last minute uh, recording and for some reason my microphone was not working so I didn't want to have to reschedule the interview and just went ahead with my uh, headphones and man you can really tell a difference between the podcast mic and the headphones but fortunately our guest is the main speaker and so uh, the qual the content is still really good in this week's episode Mitch Muncy is our guest. Uh, Mitch is founder and principal of Prospera LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based consultancy providing strategy development, nonprofit due diligence, crisis management, and interim executive management to mission-driven organizations and philanthropists. He hosts The Successful Strategist, a podcast on strategy, management, and governance. Over the last 25 years, he has been co-founder or chief executive of five startups, for-profit and non-profit, spanning higher education, public policy, and the media. He has appeared on C-SPAN, CNN, NPR, and the BBC, as well as in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Publishers Weekly. He previously served on the board of directors and executive committee of the Independent Book Publishers Association and has spoken widely at American universities and industry events. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy this great conversation with Mitch Muncie. Well, welcome to One Visit Away, Mitch. Thanks for being here. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, so this is the, uh, I've, I've done these a couple times before where 
for some reason I get a, a time slot available and I go on LinkedIn and I'm like, hey, is anybody free to uh, to record for at this specific time? And Mitch was one of the people that reached out and uh, someone I've wanted to get to know for a while. So if you could just introduce yourself to everybody and a uh, little bit of, of your background and what you do now. Sure. Sure. So I'm the uh, founder and principal of uh, my own consulting firm, Prospera, and I'm a strategy and management consultant for uh, mission-driven organizations and philanthropists. And I provide uh, strategy development, uh, what I call nonprofit due diligence, uh, crisis management, and then interim executive management. And uh, I spent about I've worked uh, over my career, I've worked on about five startups, both for-profit and non-profit, uh, all from uh, you know, the media, public policy. Um, and uh, I spent half my career working at a for-profit business and the second part of my career managing non-profits, uh, either as the COO or executive director. And six years ago, I started, I started this consultancy because I... Realized over time I was kind of developing a distinctive approach to these these questions and uh, decided to go out on my own. Yeah, for sure, <clears throat> man. When you when you talked about crisis management and a couple of the other things, it there's a lot of times uh, I can think of, man, it would be good to have somebody who's equipped to uh, handle this kind of stuff because I think in the in the nonprofit world it happens so frequently, like. I mean, things happen like someone, an important person on the team passes away or maybe their spouse does or I mean, or there's some sort of like scandalous situation that happens. And it's like, how do you navigate that stuff? And if, if you've never been there, like many of us in the nonprofit world, especially maybe working for a smaller organization, it's like you've never seen this before. So, right. I'm, I'm sure also, it, it's it, very helpful. It's also good to have help from somebody who was not involved in creating the situation that you're trying to to deal with, right? <laughs> right. So, so even you know, even people of goodwill, but who are part of, who are themselves part of the crisis, that it can be a real challenge for them to to deal with it in a in an even-handed way. Right. Sure. I mean, for, first, I'll just to kind of set set the stage. You know, one thing that I tell clients frequently is that uh, it's nonprofit clients is that difficulties in fundraising often reveal problems with their strategy. And this, in my experience, this has shown up in three ways. The first is a lack of clarity that the organization doesn't isn't really focused on the thing that they can do better than anyone else, or they haven't formulated that focus in a clear and compelling way. Uh, the second is a lack of compatibility. So, I mean, as you well know, there are a range of fundraising tactics that organizations can choose from. 
each of these tactics requires a somewhat different business model. And some of them require very different business models from each other. So especially if you're in a smaller organization uh, that can't have a dedicated person or dedicated staff for each different tactic, having one person try to do all of these different tactics leads to a, a drain on the on the organization. And, and actually, you know, major gift fundraising is a good example of this. I mean, if I was going to become a full-time fundraiser, I would be a major gift fundraiser. Uh, I would not be a direct mail fundraiser because that's a completely different business model, as you know, and, and it's very difficult for the same person to do both of those things. And then the final problem uh, I see is a lack of collaboration where the executive director and the board, particularly the board chair, aren't aren't actually in agreement about what the organization should be doing or or who should be doing what to to raise money. And so all three of those things, clarity, compatibility and collaboration, all cause fundraising trouble of, of which the difficulty raising money is just the symptom of the of the deeper problem. And, and part of the way that, that I came to this when I was when I was younger is, um, you know, one of the things I really like about the advice you give is your focus on the mindset of the major gift fundraiser. And back when I was you know, very early on in my career trying to raise money and I would realize there was some reason I was I was not being effective or I was kind of resisting, you know, asking people for money. And it wasn't because I have a problem asking people for money, which doesn't doesn't bother me. So I, I there was one case where my boss was particularly you know justifiably annoyed with me that I wasn't really being more aggressive. And so I thought, well, what's my problem with this program I'm trying to raise money for? And and I realized, well, the problem is I don't really think this is a very good program. <laughs> Or, or, or I don't really think we've sharpened our message on it. And so I don't feel confident asking someone for money for this because I myself don't really, really believe this is that, that great of a thing, right? And so I realized, okay, I've got to, since I don't get to decide yet whether we do this thing or not, I've got to find a way to present this where I myself am convinced that, that this is a good idea. So anyway, that just kind of gives you my general Point of view, and yeah, and so I'll go into some concrete examples of this. So one one organization that I worked with uh, was led by this kind of you know visionary founder, uh, you know uh, uh, a person of really broad interests, broad cultural interests. It was a public policy organization, and you know that that that's great, except that every couple of years. Uh, the, the founder would sort of settle on something new that was particularly interesting to him and would want to want to start a, a new program in the organization. And precisely because he was a person of such broad interests and broad knowledge, each new program didn't actually have that much to do with the programs that was that the organization was already running. So it, it isn't as though. Um, it was simply a, a different focus of, of something they'd already been doing. It would be something completely different, requiring a completely different funding stream, a completely different staff. Uh, and, and so both the board and the major donors of the organization, every couple of years, they would experience a kind of mild 
case of whiplash when he would come in with the new program he was doing. And, and it, you know, it's not even that his ideas were bad ideas because they weren't or that the work that that would be produced was not good because because it was. Um, but the two difficulties were that uh, there couldn't there, first of all, couldn't be a unified strategy so that there was something that the organization was known for doing better than than anyone else. And so that the organization can, could have a strong identity, uh, particularly when when meeting new potential major donors. Right. So you would meet somebody new. They would say, what do you do? And you would present the four things the organization was totally doing and they would be completely confused by it. Um, and as a, you know, and as a senior manager of that organization, it was very challenging for me to sort of present this as a as a whole. The other uh, on, on the point about collaboration, the other unfortunate um, consequence of this is that the board of this organization was a little bit balkanized because often when he would add a major new program, uh, they would add another board member or two to help bolster that particular program. And the result was that that we had a board of I mean, it, it was it was a decent board. But there wasn't any unity on the board. So a third of the, a third of the board would be very interested in one program, totally uninterested in the others. And, and so the board, it was very difficult for the board to come together on anything and for the board chair to really build unity, uh, across the board members' different interests. And so this was one example of an organization that had, couldn't really have a strategy because the program was so fragmented. And part of the work I did with them was to try to pull things together, which which eventually we, we did to, to some degree, but it did eventually require letting go of a couple of things that the founder really wanted to do simply because there, there just wasn't a way to build a coherent fundraising program around such a, a fragmented uh, organization. Yeah. So that was one one example. I'm sure you've run into cases like this yourself. Oh yeah, and it's it's interesting because yeah, I I definitely see it in the nonprofit world, but to me, where it's it's maybe more obvious, at least in my mind, mm-hmm. is when people are trying to start a business of some sort. Like a lot of people, yes. so so like a lot of people who want to become a consultant of some sort, they're like. I help nonprofits or, <laughs> or right. e- even a, even a little more focused. I help nonprofits with fundraising and it's right. like, okay, fundraising could mean 750 different yeah. things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's one of the things, you know, <clears throat> like what you're doing, you're focused on strategy. I'm focused on major gifts. And, right. and when I, one of the things I've realized when, it's been so easy for me to get business because p- partially because when I vi- when I meet with somebody, it's like, hey, this is the one thing that I do. Right. If this either makes sense or it doesn't. And decisions can yeah. get made very quickly. If it's like, right. tell me everything you've ever done about fundraising and I will present you 30 different options of how could I assist you. It just exactly what you said. It's just confusion. Decisions don't get made and, you know, you never go anywhere. So I think that focus, at least you got to focus on one thing, at least until you're kind of like dominating in that area. Right. And then we could consider maybe adding something at that time. Right. Well, right. So as you saw in the beginning, there are basically four things I offer to do for people. 
and and even under strategy development, I have basically three three versions of the service I offer at three different price points, depending on what the client needs. And if people say, well, we don't need any of those things, that's totally fine. I'm happy to recommend somebody who does. Uh, but it, it makes it very it makes it very clear. Yeah. Mm. So this is the other thing. It related to it. It's interesting how how you set up the the example, because I think what I've seen is less that the leader comes up with the ideas, but some donor will come along and say, hey, I'll give you a hundred grand if you do this. Right. Sure. Yeah. And then it's like, well, we want the hundred thousand. So I guess we'll do that thing, even though it right. has nothing to do with what our strategy right. is. Yeah, I see a lot of that, too. And and yes, you're absolutely right. It's very hard, especially if it's a six or seven figure gift. It's very hard for an organization to say no to right. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 of course, one one part of the, the strategy work I, I do with them is that often those those donor gifts are restricted in some way. And so one thing. Right. I have to point out to the organization is that 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 money, you know, it's a lot of money, but it may not be there for the things that for some of the things that you really need to do. Right. Right. You can't think of it as, you know, a million dollars that is now for whatever you want, as long as you do what the donor says. That's not how it works. And then in addition to that, of course, as you suggest, there's the coherence problem. Right. If you're if your mission expands or reorients every time somebody comes along with with uh, some new money, you don't really have a chance to build a strategy or an identity for the organization. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, let's jump into your uh, your second example here. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my second example, a little bit different than 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 the others. So this was um, an organization that I was um, brought in to to work with after they had uh, become insolvent <laughs> under the uh, supervision of their their. Uh, uh, initial executive director. And uh, this this was an organization that I'll just describe it very generally. They, they had produced a really outstanding uh, documentary series. And I'll, I won't give any more detail than that, except to say that it was it was definitely produced to the highest professional standards. It's something that could easily have been shown on public television. It was it was really excellent. The problem was it had been produced for a very specific occasion, uh, and and there was so much enthusiasm on that particular occasion that without really thinking very far down the road, a group of people had said, or really one couple of people in particular had said, "Let's start an organization to promote this." this documentary and do more documentaries, right? And so there was just this moment of enthusiasm where people didn't want to think about, you know, opportunity cost and whether they really had the capitalization to produce further documentaries down the road. And so they founded this organization and discovered that, you know, uh, promoting, uh, promoting film is extremely expensive. <laughs> They, and they had they burned through uh, what was you know a, a not insubstantial amount of initial capital. I mean it was it was an amount of capital that many nonprofits would love to start with. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough capital for this particular kind of nonprofit. They probably needed about five to ten times 
the amount of money to really produce uh, films at the rate uh, that they that they wanted to. And one of the things, unfortunately, they didn't do was a lot of was was really very much market research to see whether the documentaries in the forms that they currently were for the particular occasion they'd been used would would support you know mass mass distribution or broadcast distribution and so that was an example of people not not taking a moment before starting the organization to ask important strategic questions right you know these are wonderful products but but is there actually a market out there either pay, a paid market or uh, sufficient fundraising to support future productions, because this was definitely a major gift entity. You were not going to raise enough money from direct mail or smaller gifts for, for the amount of capital that they would need, which would have been easily in the mid six to, to low seven, or I'm sorry, low seven, mid seven to low eight figure, uh, you know, money. And, and so, and so what happened was that without a strategy, the, the uh, initial executive director, spread their capital too thin, doing a lot of rather expensive things to try to see what, what would work. And so at the point I was brought in, they were, they were insolvent. Uh, fortunately, insolvent and illiquid are not the same thing. So we did, we did have some cash still to, to work with. But, but as I interviewed each board member, I said, okay, why, why did you agree to help start this organization? And what did you hope to accomplish by doing this? None of them had a very good answer and none of them had the same answer. Right. And this was a group of about eight or 10 people. So, you know, there were a lot of different versions of what this organization should be doing. And so I went to the board chair uh, who, who had recruited me and I said, I said, look, um, you're about out of money. Uh, you don't have any unity here on what what should be done. I really think what you need to do is roll this up, uh, give the intellectual property to an organization, a stable organization that can incorporate it into work that it's already doing, because you're, you just don't have the enough here to support a freestanding organization. And that's what they ended up they ended up doing. But again, that's a, that was a strategy question, you know, starting at the beginning. Like, why are we doing this? Do we all agree? Why should we be doing this? And 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 mostly, most importantly, how much money do we really need? Um, because some research into the amount of capital that similar organizations had needed to get started would have told them how much more they needed beyond the gifts they had already received, and it would have told them that there was just not yet a big enough major gift base to support this very expensive enterprise. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's also, <clears throat> it brings up in my mind an interesting question of the, do we go for-profit or non-profit route? Right, right. Because uh, sometimes what I see is, and I, I don't know enough about the documentary or production business mm -hmm. to you know comment intelligently on this specifically, but sometimes I'll see people, they'll have an idea and they'll be like, man, this is such a great idea. Right. Uh, how in the world will I possibly make this profitable? Uh, well, let me just, let me make it into a nonprofit. And it's kind of like, right. Sometimes we take <laughs> a really crappy 
business like it, like it's not gonna work and <laughs> right, so we're like right. nobody would ever pay for this so let me just ask people to give and it's like if it could be run as a for-profit business but it just doesn't have merit and then you think you're gonna raise the money that's probably not gonna work now i i can right. see from a some sort of documentary perspective if you're like well we want to Maybe people wouldn't pay to see this, but we want to get the information out there. Maybe, but sometimes I see people wanting to use nonprofit as a crutch. Oh, and absolutely. Then, yeah. And then the donor's just like, you just look like you don't know how to run a business. So why would I give you any money? <laughs> right. No, that, that's true. Well, I tell people, you know, nonprofit is a tax status, not a strategy, right? Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, nonprofits still need to end up with, with, money left over at the end of the year right so it isn't yeah. they, the difference is they just don't distribute it to the to a group of shareholders right that's the difference exactly from a, from a for profit and yeah. and no you're 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 absolutely right it, it your if your business plan is bad it doesn't make it better to turn it into to a nonprofit uh <laughs> <laughs> indeed man well yeah that that's a good one so yeah and i mean i'm glad they they did take your advice and give it over to another organization. Cause the other thing people will do is just, you know, hold on to an idea for dear life until, uh, you know, death and destruction come to all parties involved when like well, you could have just well, given but, up earlier. <laughs> well, I'm glad they took my advice too. Although I would have to say that the situation was pretty unambiguous uh, you know, because the, the several of the board members were themselves major donors to the project. And, you know, they they themselves did not want to renew their gifts, given how things had gone. And they had enough experience to know that if 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 they didn't want to give more money, they weren't going to be able to convince anybody else to give more money. Right. So. So, yeah. So that's but again, that's a situation where, uh, you, you know, you. I often tell people, I mean, there are plenty of people who have ideas for organizations they could start. I was talking to somebody yesterday and saying, you know, at the end of every presidential administration, <clears throat> you know, executive branch employees disgorge themselves into the Washington, D.C. policy world. And they all want to start their own think tank when when really 95 percent of them should just go be a fellow at a think tank that already exists. And 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 one thing I try to tell people is, look, starting a new organization is is a lot of work beyond the thing that you want the organization to accomplish. And you really need to assess whether it wouldn't be better for you just to work with some something that already exists. You know, it isn't necessary to be in charge personally to, to, to do good work. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think that's a great point and something I. Yeah, something that comes up a lot um, is people want to start their own thing. And it's like, sometimes that's necessary, but sometimes all that energy put into something that already exists would get a lot greater impact. Um, right, overall. right. I, did, I mean, I did this with my own business idea. I mean, I thought, okay, I would like to be a consultant. Should I Should I go find a consulting firm to to work for? So right. one, one question for me was, well, is, is my approach distinctive enough and is there a big enough market for it that it would justify having a, 
a standalone organization. And and I would say that, you know, I'm paying the bills, but the jury's still out on that. <laughs> we'll Indeed. see. We'll see. <laughs> That's awesome. Um Cool. Yeah, let's uh, jump into your into your third one here, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this was this was one where, you know, occasionally, uh, but but regularly, I run across organizations where where the 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 former beneficiaries of the organization could become substantial donors to it. I mean, very much like a university, right? Right. You know, you, universities raise. 80% of their money from alumni and parents, right? And if you, if they, if they don't raise money from alumni and parents, they're not going to get it somewhere else, right? So, but, 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 but the, these, these organizations, I have one example in mind in particular, but I've encountered this several times where they say, oh, we, we don't, we don't want to raise money from our friends. We, we need to go out and find a, a new group of people that are going to support the educational project that that we're doing and and again you know i i look at this as mainly a a strategy problem because it's almost always poor strategy to sacrifice or ignore the audience you have in the hope of building a a new audience that you don't have right now there are some times when 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 pivoting your 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 business or your nonprofit that way is is the thing to do and of course, there are examples of organizations having done that successfully. But you don't want to start off presuming that's that's the that's the way. So, you know, I work with these nonprofits that have been around for five, ten, you know, twenty years, have a body of of, of professionals that benefited from them that now could support them to a substantial degree, and they just don't want to ask these people for 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 money, and sometimes haven't even been keeping track of who of who they are. So I'll say, well, do you, do you have a list of people who've been through your program? Well, no. Well, your program's been around for, you know, 10 years. How many alumni do you have? Oh, 1,500. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and so, again, you know, I uh, I think this goes a lot to some of the mindset questions that 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 you deal with uh, in, in your work, like the post you, you put up this morning on LinkedIn, where, you know, if you say, well, if if you say okay, I'm going to raise five hundred thousand dollars, well, you will raise five hundred thousand dollars or less. Uh, if you know, and if you say, well, I'm going to raise five million dollars, you will raise at most five million dollars and probably somewhat less than that. And and so, if you simply cut out of your fundraising plan the idea that any of your beneficiaries will ever support you or ought ever to support you. You know, you're cutting off not only a substantial base of financial support, but also the main evangelist for your program. I mean, who better who better to help you recruit new donors into your network than people who benefited from your program and are enthusiastic about it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is the th- one of the things I encounter more commonly than anything else is just the idea that you know people think they don't know the people that they need to know to ask for money. It's like, right. you, it doesn't matter. It does not matter at all where you are in the history of the organization, whether right. you have one person giving you money, like you got one person who's giving you $10 a month, or you have a hundred thousand people, the place you always start 
is with the people connected yes, to the right. organization right now. Right. Um, because one, you have no idea what their capacity is, could be immensely greater than what they're doing now. And then two, even if they don't, they they can connect you to somebody who does and a, a referral from somebody who's currently giving to you right. is a thousand times more powerful than, you know, hey, let me just give you the cell phone number of this person. You can't tell them I gave it to you, but, you know, yeah, right. they're rich. Like, <laughs> right, right. Well, this this goes to the point I made earlier about, about collaboration uh, between the executive director and the board. I, I find that there are problems in, in both directions. I mean, for, for, first of all, uh, executive directors often resist leading their board on fundraising. Right. So they, they, they don't want to tell board members what they need for them to do in a way that allows board members to know whether they've done it. Right. So, so they'll just say to the board, help me raise more money. Well, that doesn't tell anybody anything. Right. But if you say, if you say to a board member over the next 12 months, I would like for you to commit to introducing me to three people, you know, who might be interested in the organization and coming with me to meet those people and talk to them about our work. All right. That's something that somebody can say, okay, I, I can make a list of three people. And then after you've had those three meetings, the board member can say, ah, I did what I was asked to do. Right. Right. From, from, from the, um, and the other thing too, is I, I find that sometimes executive directors need to be more, uh, have a broader, conception of what their board members can can do for them because it's it's not simply say coming with them to meet a wealthy person who can be a major donor but maybe there is some in-kind resource that that board member has that's extreme that could be extremely valuable to the organization um, or maybe that that board member can host an event for them I mean there, there are many ways for board members to help with fundraising that don't necessarily mean writing a check themselves or convincing somebody else to, to write a, write a check. And now from the other direction, um, I think that, that board members and, and oftentimes also board chairs don't take their, their nonprofit board responsibilities quite as seriously as they do uh, for-profit responsibilities. And this goes back to what we were, we were talking about about earlier about you know a nonprofit just being a a for profit with a bad business model right and and and, and in particular um, the executive director and board chair have to have a strong relationship such that the board chair is willing to engage in a little bit of enforcement when other board members don't fulfill the commitments they've made. Um, or, or when somebody new is coming onto the board, it's the board chair's responsibility to say, okay, here are the things that we, we expect, uh, our board members to do to contribute to the organization. If this is not something you, you want or feel able to do, we totally understand, but, you know, we'd like you to be on an advisory board rather than the board of directors, say something, something like that. So, and, and when a board chair isn't willing to do that, um, it is, it is very hard for the executive director to uh, in, enforce anything that he agrees on, you know, with with individual 
board members. So the collaboration has to go has to go both ways. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So it makes me think of uh, one of the things I was going to bring up today was I've had this idea. I've mentioned it once before on on the podcast, but I haven't actually posted it to LinkedIn because it's too uh, it's intentionally obnoxious. And uh, <laughs> but but there's a, there's a point to it. Basically, I what I've wanted to. You know, I have this conversation, this debate sometimes of sales versus major gifts. And I believe they are extremely sales done well is very similar to major gifts done well. Right. Right. In my opinion. And so anyway, I've wanted to post. I don't know what the question is, but I do know what the answer is. More sales. And that's (laughs) right. what, What I've despite uh, the impact I think that that has, I think there's there's a better answer, which is, uh, in my opinion, the, the real answer is leadership. And that lines in with strategy because at the end of the day, like, yes, most of your problems can be solved by having more revenue. But one of the reasons revenue will suffer dramatically is if leadership is failing and part of that is a strategy is failing. So I think what you're talking about is just is so key to everything because it it doesn't matter how good you are at major gifts or how many people you call or how many asks you make. If the strategy and the vision isn't there, you know, you're only going to be at 10 percent of where you could be. Well, right. And if you don't if you don't have a strategy, then more money is just more money to waste. Right. I mean, the example I was like, look at Theranos. They wasted nine hundred million dollars of money, you know, and, and you know, <laughs> and they're not the only inter- they're not the only enterprise of, of that kind for profit and, and nonprofit. You know, so. So, yes, I mean, without without having decided what you ought to be spending money on that money is just going to go to waste even if you have a lot of it. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, <laughs> one time. So when I was, when I was a little kid, my, my family, we were going, I don't know where we were going. We, I grew up in new Orleans. So we're, if you've ever been there, we're, we're leaving new Orleans, going to, going to Metairie. And so we're on veterans Boulevard and I, I, th- we were going out to eat or something. I don't know. And at some point, my my parents were. This is you know before GPS, and they're they're like lost, like don't know where they're going exactly. It was some new place, and I was like, I was like, where are we going? Or I asked something like that. I was a little kid, and my dad said, I don't know, because I think he was just kind of confused. And so so my question was, well, how are we gonna <laughs> if we don't know where we're going? How are we gonna get there? right right. and that's the that is the strategy uh question if we don't know where we're going how are we going to get there right right well i i did a a a couple of months ago i did an episode of my my uh podcast on what what is a what is a strategic plan that is first of all what is a plan and what makes that plan strategic because most strategic plans I review aren't strategies and they also aren't plans, right? So to go to the story you told, like, 
like what you think about, I mean, you can think about a plan in terms of, you know, taking a trip like you described. Okay. A trip has a, a place that you're starting from, a place that you're going and a decision about how you're going to get from one place to another. Right. And most, most plans that I review don't have any of these three elements. Right. So the, the plan begins while well, everything is awesome. Uh, and we're going to do some stuff and then it's going to be awesomer, you know, <laughs> right. And then, and, and I say, well, you know, it's going to be really hard to raise any money with that. <laughs> right. And, and, and I don't know what your experience uh, is on, on this, but I, I have a kind of controversial idea I'll share with you, which is just from my, my major gift fundraising experience is that, that the competition for, for your organization with fundraising is not some similar organization. It's whatever investment vehicle the major donor has has their money in that they're going to have to take it out of to give to you, right? And this goes to your point about uh, you know a nonprofit being more than a for profit with a bad business plan, right? So your 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 potential major donor has invested money in a certain way because they think that's going to yield something for them. And when you're asking them to take that money out of that investment and give it to you, you're asking them to make a different kind of investment, but it is an investment, right? And if they look at your strategy plan and it's just awesome to awesomer, you know, they're going to say, well, this is not, I mean, this is not really a plan here. And, and so, no, I, I won't give you $500,000 for it. Right. Yep. Exactly. Man. Well, that's good stuff. You've uh, speaking of your podcast, you mentioned you've got your one year anniversary. Right. So I uh, I have a podcast on strategy management and governance called the Successful Strategist. It's on every major podcast platform. In fact, I think you and I use the same services. I do my podcasts with Squadcast and distribute it with Buzzsprout. So, uh, but I I do two five minute episodes every week. I'm about to complete my third season. And um, it's based on the idea that, that you know, most people are not trained to think strategically. Uh, I think most people can learn to think strategically, but, but nothing in their education really prepares them for it. So I just take one issue in each episode for five minutes, twice a week, to just give people something to think about. And I'll do the episodes of little series covering, you know, a variety of aspects of the same issue. So yes, so this April is the first anniversary of my podcast. I'm finishing the third season and I'm doing a uh, giveaway uh, for people who leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and join my newsletter email list. And the giveaway is I'll, I'll draw one listener's name at random uh, at the end of the month to receive a gift subscription to the Harvard Business Review, which I, I actually think is a pretty great gift, frankly. <laughs> and so anybody... Anybody who wants the details on that can go find the podcast on any of the major services, or they can visit um, prosperallc.com backslash giveaway, which is the page on my website that has all the details. So yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm doing there. Sweet, yeah, and I'll put a link in the uh, description of the episode uh, to that. And uh, yeah, really great having you on, Mitch. And uh, thanks for sharing all these stories. Okay, well, Kevin, listen, I, it's been great. I think you give some of the best advice I've ever heard on major gift fundraising. And I'm really 
always happy to recommend your podcast to people. And I'm going to be even happier to recommend your course when you uh, launch that. So, yeah. Well, thanks thank very you. much yeah, again. I'm really looking, looking forward to getting it, getting it live. Thanks, Mitch. Great okay. talking to you. Have a Take good care. one. That was Mitch Muncie, founder of Prospera LLC. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, I hope this episode has inspired you to schedule more visits. If it has, if you've enjoyed this content, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And please share an episode that you really enjoyed of this podcast personally with a, another development professional. Just send them a text with the link to the episode, and that really helps the show grow. So thank you so much for listening. As always, uh, I hope this episode has inspired you to schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from growing your mission and your impact.